Welcome to the Brisbane Property Podcast with your hosts, Melinda and Scott Jennison from Streamline Property Buyers, your local Brisbane property specialists. Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Brisbane Property Podcast. My name is Scott Jennison. I'm the Acquisitions Manager here at Streamline Property Buyers in Brisbane. Um, and very excited today, we've got a special guest. Um, I have watched uh, Peter perform or or, or <laughs> I call it almost a performance Peter um present, at, at present. um and it's been it's always entertaining and I always um whether it shows a bit of my age but um I always love listening and, and learning from you so um, I'd like to welcome Peter Klusos um with Melinda and I today hello to- Scott and Melinda yeah, welcome to the podcast. Um, and this is no ordinary person. Peter is actually a professor, uh, better known as the property professor. He holds a teaching degree, um, a graduate diploma in property, a master's of uh, business in property, a master of urban and regional planning. The list really does go on. Um, he's also teaching in real estate and property investment um, areas, and he's been doing so for over 20 years and personally, Peter is a property developer, he's a property investor, and he currently owns several investment properties. So we're absolutely delighted to have Peter on the podcast today. Um, he's also currently a lecturer at the University of Adelaide, and he teaches a Master of Property degree. So we're going to find out a little bit more about that towards the end of the program today. But um, we're really going to take a deep dive into some of the work Peter has done over many, many years. And then we're going to provide an, a local angle on, you know, some of the work that Peter's actually done here in Brisbane. And we're going to actually see how some of his predictions that were made a number of years ago have played out over the long term in terms of property prices. Now, Peter, you you published the book, The um, Property Professor's Top Australian Suburbs, back in 2008. Um, as I as I said at the start, I'm sure our listeners will get a lot out of today, as as I do when we always talk, because it's always interesting when you talk about history. And I, I look at old school, and I can I can show my age a little bit, um, you know. And we look at how things have changed. We had a quick discussion off air. You said you're organising some students and the days when they used to come into a hall and and actually learned as opposed to doing things online. And I said, well, that's gentrification. And I know that's an area that you talk a lot about is gentrification. So it's obviously an area you're specialising. Can you tell tell us a little bit more? Well, let me tell you about gentrification and education first, shall I? Because Absolutely. we went from old school to having people sitting in halls doing exams. And, uh, I mean, the listeners wouldn't know, but unfortunately I was a little bit late coming on because we had tri- trouble with an online quiz. Well, I've decided there are no more online quizzes. <laughs> we are going back to sitting in a the student sitting at a desk uh, with pencil and paper because the other issue that we've got is artificial intelligence mm. and uh, and I think we'll see a lot of people um, going back to the old ways because a lot of employers want to make sure that the person that they've got all those assessments that they did they did themselves rather than somebody mm. else. But we're not here to talk about. Property education, we're talk, We're here to talk about uh, gentrification. Yeah, so look, gentrification is a, is an area of real interest to me because and if you can imagine the, the West End in Brisbane, a lot of your listeners would know the West End. Well, I lived in the equivalent of that in Adelaide called Torrensville. And so I've lived gentrification. I've lived in an area where really nobody wanted to live in because it was typically blue-collar. Hmm but mainly because of its 
position to the city, right? Think West End, how close it is to the city. And it's high concentration of character homes. Think about those Queenslander homes in, in the West End. A lot of the uh, white-collar workers, a lot of the professionals that worked in the city, moved into those older homes, fixed them up, and now the area is more blue-chip rather than blue-collar. So I, I've lived the experience, and so that probably sparked my interest in actually doing some academic research about it and see, you know, what I experienced in, in little old Adelaide is that similar to what happens in other parts of Australia and in other parts of the world. Mm. And indeed it is. So you talk a lot there about the um, the the change in the demographic group. Those uh, professionals start to move in and they're attracted to those character homes in the area. And you mentioned here in Brisbane, those character homes are those traditional Queenslander homes. What other indicators might you see for an area that might be just starting to gentrify? Because this process can take many, many years. Is that right? Yeah, it certainly does. So look, some of the demographic indicators that you may not be able to see if you're walking around, but you can certainly check out on, say, the ABS uh, website. Uh, we're looking for a, a greater decrease in the age of, of people aged 18 years or under. When I say greater, greater than the state average. Mm -hmm. uh, a greater increase in couples without children, so less dependents, Therefore, they have more money to spend on property renovations and extensions. Um, a greater increase in the percentage of females working in the professional occupations, not just greater number of professionals. One of the reasons we often talk about, say, the professionals and managers is typically they earn above average income. But in my research, it was particularly female professionals. But, Melinda, I think the greatest a demographic factor is a different group of people moving in. So in the ABS, it says you can find people that lived at a different address five years ago. And so for me, that is a really key indicator because it's not like an area that was blue collar turns blue chip because the people that live there still live there and now suddenly they've stopped working in factories and they're working in high-level jobs in the office. It doesn't work mm -hmm. like that. So those people that were uh, blue-collar workers on lower incomes have moved out for whatever reason. Some of them have passed away. Often uh, uh, older people have been in these houses for decades. Uh, wealthier people have moved in, and therefore they're the ones that can afford to improve the property and the place. And so there are actually two stats in the ABS. One is different address five years ago, different address one year ago. I take more notice of the different address five years ago because you can have lots of renters that live somewhere else a year ago and renters really aren't going to push property prices up. But if you live somewhere else five years ago and so you've been here for about, in this new area for about five years, you've probably bought a house there. Either that or you're getting along really well with your landlord <laughs> and you've been there for a long time. But typically they would be owner occupiers rather than renters. Now, now, Peter, I, I did listen to you last time you spoke and you also talked about coffee shops and um, yeah. yoga studios as well. Um, I thought that was always a good one. And the other one I, I notice in areas like this at the moment is these microbreweries as well popping up. Oh, the craft breweries. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so and, and a, a great example for Brisbane people who are 
interested in seeing you know how it happens in other cities. If you have a look at the the uh, suburb of Theberton in Adelaide, often people from the eastern states call it the Barton, but it's actually called Theberton. And it's so where it is, it's in the west, like just like the West End. There's the city, there's the parklands, and right next door is Theberton. And so Theberton was an area where if you went into the Wheatshift Hotel, which is in Theberton, 30 years ago, you'd see the blokes with their blue singlets at the front bar drinking their Forex or West End Draft or Two E's or VB, um, and they'd be smoking because you could smoke indoors back then, and they'd be watching the TV screens and there'd be a TV, TAB in the, in the pub and they'd be betting on the races, watching the footy, um, and I think you get the idea. And they'd, and they'd be eating bangers and mash or a bacon and egg sandwich, right? Now you go to the Wheatshift Hotel, I don't think they'll let you in if you're wearing one of those blue singlets, <laughs> right? The fellas are wearing nice shirts and, and pants. The only beer that you can buy is craft beer. The craft beer is on tap. They actually have their own microbrewery at the back. There is no, There are no pokies, no big TV screens, and they have a jazz band on a Sunday afternoon. And interestingly, the pub doesn't have a kitchen. But what it does have is food vans and a different food van every night so you can walk outside, grab your meal, go back inside and eat your meal with a drink. So that, to me, that is one indicator. Another one is you know, 30 years ago, the only coffee that you could get in the area was Greek coffee because it was settled by Greek migrants, just like the West End. And there were no shops selling it. Like you have to go into somebody's house to have the Greek coffee. Now, like there are four or five cafes uh, soy milk, almond milk, oat milk, right, whatever else you can make milk from, right? <laughs> there are no two chairs that are the same, no two plates that are the same, but the barista knows your name and knows exactly what coffee you want. Um, and so th to me, these are other signs that you can't pick up just from, you know, checking out the ABS site or looking on your computer, but physically being there, um, and other, I mean, if we move away from cafes and pubs, so you see street art appearing on the electricity poles. You see, instead of the garden out in the footpath just being lawn or nothing, people are planting flowers. Sometimes they might even plant vegetables, which gives you an idea that there is also a lovely community feel about the area. So look, there. Are, I think in, in the presentation, I said there's an art and a science mm. to finding gentrifying areas. The science is certainly sitting behind your desk and, and crunching the numbers and checking out the demographic. But the art is about walking around the area and checking out what's changing in the in the properties, what's changing in the people, and what's changing in the place. So the art is obviously then leads a little bit to local, local knowledge. I mean, I don't oh, that know, is I don't know Everton at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. but again, being Brisbane locals and you're talking about West End, New Farm, those sort of areas that's where we see it from a local point of view, the areas have really changed. Yeah, and th there are some parts like there are some parts in Thebedon that I wouldn't buy because they're very close to the industrial section. So Thebedon was an industrial area where we had the West End Brewery, Coca-Cola, a, a big paper mill. Um, they've all gone and they're all going to be converted to mixed-use developments uh, and significant uh, residential component. And so... Now that those industries are gone, a lot more people find it more attractive 
Mm. Because you like you can either walk into the city or you catch the free tram into the city. So it, it is certainly becoming very popular, but I'm not saying that every street in Thurberton or every street in the West End is a great street to be buying residential property in. We talk a lot about the art and the science of buying property. And, Peter, you've gone, provided a really good snapshot of where people can go uh, to get this information through the ABS data. Um, that census data, I believe that'll be through the quick stats information yep. at a suburb or, or an SA2 or SA3 level. Um, obviously, being on the ground, you'll see that gentrification happen in real time through some of those visual changes over time, people um, moving, you can see what they're wearing, you can see what prams they're pushing, these are visual signs. With the way property and property investing has changed over the last several years with the integration of artificial intelligence and the ability to base decisions on mass data, there's a lot of individuals or companies that are promoting hotspots or quick gains and identifying locations purely based on data that might have the the next, it might be the next big thing. What is your perspective on some of these areas or some of this data that people are relying upon without that additional layer of the art or the local knowledge? Can you share that with us? Yes. Look, as you said at the beginning, I'm also a property investor myself. And one of the reasons that property investment has been good to me because I've been in for the long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you make your best money in the good times, but I don't I don't know when the good times are coming. You know, I, like many other people, thought that the property market was not going to do too well during COVID. And look how wrong I was and many of us were. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, most of, most of my gains in my properties were because of the COVID property boom. But, you know, Brisbane, along with Adelaide, had a great property boom in 2001, two and three. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and now I can see why that happened, because we had the recession in the 90s. Mm. Um, we had the introduction of the GST on July 1st, 2000, and, like, everybody stops thinking that everything is going to suddenly increase by 20, uh, 10%. But then there were incentives that came in. So John Howard back in the day brought in the first home buyer's grant of 7000 That wasn't enough, so he doubled it to fourteen. That was after the building lobby group said, you know, that's just not enough. Mm. Some states increased it even more. Uh, he also bought, in 1999, he bought in the capital gains tax discount of 50%. So, yeah, with with the benefit of hindsight, you can, oh, yeah, of course that was going to happen. Mm. But you don't know that that was going to happen. So the safest thing to do is do your research and when you're confident that you've got it right, and, look, it's almost impossible to tick all the boxes, all right? You know? Very hard to find a perfect property. I mean, I, I've done very well, but I don't think any of my properties are perfect because if they were, I wouldn't be spending one cent on maintenance. But the reality is you do have to spend money on maintenance. And just stick with it. Another, uh, one of your, your listeners might be interested in, I did a, a presentation for a little video for Pippa called Time in the Market or Timing the Market. Mm. So if you watch that, and I think it goes for about 10 or 15 minutes, Basically, the bottom line is you're better off uh, having time in the market. because The killer is the transaction costs. Mm. You buy a property, it's 4 or 5% extra in stamp duty. You sell a property, it's another 2 or 3% in um, uh, selling fees to the agent. And then, of course, you've got to pay capital gains tax. So when you go into the market, again, you're not going in with the same money that you got when you sold it. You take out your tax, you take out your selling fees, and then we go again. 
And that assumes that you get it perfectly right. You know, if you're going to, and in the video it has, all right, so if I went to a different city every five years, how would it have gone? And eight times eight times eight, 64, that's about 500 different possibilities. And I worked out, yeah, sure, if you were a genius and you worked out the, the, the three best cities in those five-year periods, then you would have outdone somebody who just sat in one city. But, I mean, you can't do that. You can't do that. So I think you need to be in for the long time to, to also benefit from the good times. Absolutely. Now, Peter, you're also based in Adelaide, as, as you've shared with our listeners, but your research has actually covered a lot of areas all around Australia. In relation to gentrification and in relation to higher growth locations over the long term, are all areas the same? Is it the same selection criteria that's used across the board? So I, when I wrote my book 15 years ago, The Top Australian Suburbs, I used the same methodology for every city. Mm-hmm. But what I found was when I presented at the PIPA conference earlier this year is that even though the basic principle of close to the city or close to the sea works, in some cities being close to the city is more important than other cities. So, for example, like you know, being in a beachside suburb in Sydney is absolutely fantastic. Being in a beachside suburb in Melbourne is not that fantastic because the beaches aren't that fantastic. Mm. And with all due respect to the people that are listening in Brisbane, you know, I'm not going to Brisbane for a beach holiday. No. I might go to the Gold Coast for a beach holiday or the Sunshine Coast. But that's not to say the beach is no good in Brisbane, but I'm just saying it doesn't have as big a pool as a Sydney beach um, or or even an Adelaide beach um, because it just doesn't have the same sort of feel about it. People don't flock to the Bayside beaches in Brisbane like they flock to the beaches in Sydney. Absolutely. And it's interesting that um, you say that because we know a lot of interstate buyers agents that might actually apply principles from the location that they're based when they do come up here to Brisbane and make recommendations on behalf of clients. And again, it comes back to that art versus the science. So the science might suggest that being Bayside or beachside or near the ocean is actually one of the criteria for selecting a high growth location, but we must overlay that with the uh, desirability of some of these locations because we know, and again, no disrespect to some of our Bayside locations, but there can be midges, there can be uh, low tide mud areas, there can be smells that that uh, you know can come through mm. residential areas because they are not sandy. Um, beaches with lovely waves that people can surf on. That's not what Brisbane has to offer. So people must understand that local, um, I guess, impact, the the things that people do desire and also the demographic of who lives in a particular location when they are looking at different types of um, investment uh, suburbs. Very well said, Melinda. So I had, out of the 20 suburbs that I picked in Brisbane, Sandgate was the top performer. But was it the top performer because it was by the beach or was it because it's got a train station or was it because it's got a high percentage of character homes? So there are a lot of other factors that will drive price other than its location. Amenities, so in places like Melbourne and Sydney and more and more so in Brisbane, being close to a train station is important because you've got easy access into the city. But in Adelaide, being close to public transport is not really that important Mm. because we are very car orientated here. We are so car orientated here that 
If we're looking for a park and we can't find one, we'll just keep driving around the block until we can find a park outside of where we want to be. <laughs> and, and car parking is relatively cheap. Like you can park your car in the city for $12 to $15 a day. Hmm. Yeah. which is not the case different here in Brisbane. In Brisbane. Yeah. And, of course, with the rate of population growth that we are experiencing into southeast Queensland as a whole, most people, when they relocate or arrive from overseas, uh, they'll start with a car. Maybe then they'll have two cars per family. The road congestion becomes more problematic over time and our roads become more and more congested. So commute times increase and, yeah, it becomes less desirable to live in some locations that might not have public transport options. And I do know Brisbane historically has had one of the most advanced public transport networks when it comes to our train network compared to other capital city markets. So we have some very established suburbs that are perhaps further away from the CBD, but they're on these train corridors because our train network was in place um, very early in the 1900s, uh, whereas we've got other locations that might be much closer to the CBD, but they're impacted by flood or there's no public transport. They're uh, congested. So commute time is actually a lot higher, even though they're actually closer to the CBD. So there's a lot of layers and that's what you've confirmed when it comes to selecting a, a quality location. And, and, and Peter, Melinda mentioned floods. Um, you know, Brisbane is a, you know, we do flood. Um, it's a river city. So did that, what sort of impact did that have when you started looking at your research with elevation? I know you talk about being near the, near the, near the bay, um, being near the CBD. What about elevation and that type of thing? Uh, so I did some research on how floods affect property prices, not just in Brisbane, but, you know, in Australia and around the world. And it seems with floods and bushfires and cyclones, people have short memories. Mm. Yep. And in particular, the expensive area. So I said before that Sandgate was my top performer, right? Number two was Norman Park. Well, that's right on the river. Mm. Um, and so what, what the research showed was that the more there are more positive things about the more expensive suburbs being on, that are on a river than the negatives of being near the river. Mm. So they bounce back really well. But what people need to consider is the insurance. Mm. Yep. That has changed significantly, especially in cyclone areas. So before you buy, I strongly encourage you to get a quote for home and contents insurance and whatever other insurance you're thinking of getting because you might find, number one, you can't get it, or number two, it is significantly high, which might impact your cash flow. And that will have an impact on your on your uh, tenant as well. Yeah, your insurance. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's it. I think with the the insurance equation, it's not a case of they they can't get insurance. It's that it's quite prohibitive because of the costs that these insurers are actually charging. And a friend of mine who lives in a flood impacted home and had her um, property actually experience uh, flood impact to the underside of the ceiling, which is horrific when you're going to help clean out, clean up that mess. It's not that she can no longer get insurance. It's just that it is prohibitive. And so it's, it's too expensive to hold insurance on that home. So they live with that risk on an ongoing basis. And that's something for some people that's completely okay and acceptable if they're living in their home for property investors. Uh, you know, that's a big risk to take, especially when the house itself is the income for your asset. So if there is a significant flood and you're not insured, then the value of your asset just plummets. Yeah, it does. Yeah. 
Peter Brisbane, what what were your predictions for for suburbs? Can you can you give us? Yeah, well, look, I'm, I'm glad that we're doing the Brisbane property podcast because Brisbane were my best performer. So what oh, I said good. was in the book: the the 20 suburbs that I've listed should do better than the Brisbane average. All mm-hmm. right. So I went from 2008 to 2022. So it was three months short of 15 years. March 2008 to December 22, three months short of 15 years. In that time, Brisbane did 76% increase, right? On average, my suburbs did 120%. But to me, the most heartening thing was that all 20 suburbs did better than Brisbane. I can't say that for all of my cities. Like generally, as an average, my, my suburbs outperformed that of the respective capital city, but some of them did not perform as well. For a number of reasons, and now I'm going back to see if I can further refine my modelling. But like Brisbane did 76%. Uh, I've already said Sandgate was my best performer, 165% increase in median property price. Norman Park, 158%. Brighton, right next door to Sandgate, 150%. Uh, The vast majority doubled in value, which at least doubled in value, which means it went 100% or more. Uh, and so, and again, my, my suburbs focused by the city and along along the coast. So, yeah, very happy to be on the Brisbane Property Podcast talking about my Brisbane suburbs. I'm glad I'm not on the Perth Property Podcast because that was a disaster. <laughs> that was a disaster. What I'd love to also um ask peter is do you feel that there's any relevance to the time frame that was selected just remind me of the years that um the study took place right so 2000 march 2008 to december 2022 15 years includes the gfc includes covid mm. it doesn't it doesn't include because brisbane only did 76 percent right at the same time sydney did 165 percent mm. But Brisbane, like Adelaide, we had our great booms 2007, the year before, and 2001, two, and three. Yeah. And it all, I mean, you can work stats whichever way you want, you know. But I mean, I'm not doing this to, you know, to try and hide something or highlight something. You know, I, I, I continually review what I said back in 2008. And the longer it goes and the more upturns we have and the more downturns we have, it will give us an even clearer picture. Uh, and, in, and I reckon if, if I'm on again this time next year and we include uh, 20, uh, 2023, then we'll see that Brisbane Brisbane's performance will be even better than, say, Melbourne, which has gone backwards mainly because of the severe lockdown. So is this a study you're going to continue to track, Peter? Will you check back in at the 20-year mark and the 25-year mark to see are these suburbs still on track with the long-term performance or are they still outperforming? Because your track record so far has been pretty good. Um, are you confident enough in those recommended locations to to tr- check back in and, and cross-check the information at the 20-year well, mark? I'm very confident because I'm a, I'm a bloke that puts his money where his mouth is. So I've, I've invested some in some of these suburbs. Yep. And let me tell you, I've done particularly well. I mean, I only invest in South Australia yep. because I know my backyard the best. Yes, even though I visited all the suburbs in my book, 107 suburbs and more, I because I'm a local, mm-hmm. I know the Adelaide market best. So 
Will I keep checking? Only if somebody asks me to go on their podcast and I have to refresh it because otherwise it's a lot of lot of work to sit down and see how things went. But, um, yeah, I, I'm happy to do that. I think yeah. we just locked you in for next year anyway, Peter. You're so on. You mentioned You're it, on. So. <laughs> um, Br- uh, Brisbane's got the Olympics, Peter. I, yes. look, people talk about it. I, some people are probably say they're sick of hearing about it. At the end of the day, it's happening. Um, how do you think that's going to change and what sort of impact do you think that will have on Brisbane? Okay. So uh, I've got a few dot points here because I've, I've done some academic research on uh, Olympics and residential property prices, both here in Australia and around the world. So research shows that residential property prices do perform better as a result of the Olympics. A study on six host cities from Los Angeles in 1984 to Sydney in 2000 suggests that the impact on the economy and the residential property prices is not even. It depends on the planning and the scale of the Olympic investment. So the more infrastructure that goes into Woolloongabba, and any other wherever the other facilities are, the more likely residential property is to um, increase. Um, an investigation on the impact of the Sydney Olympics on residential property found that the markets of host suburbs experienced substantially higher growth during the bidding and pre-Olympic periods, but not after the Olympics. So the good times that have been had pre-Olympics. Mm, yep. After that. It's a different story. And so often the best times it's when it's announced and the announcement is now one or two years old. Um, and so that's not to say that I think, you know, the, the benefits are over, but um, it's not because you've got the world's elite athletes in one city that drives property prices. It's all that extra infrastructure. All right, so they're going to redevelop the gather. All right, what well, part of that is, new transport infrastructure. Well, that helps with the appeal of that particular suburb. Mm. Um, and that go, I'm not exactly sure where the other, where, I'm, a, I'm a big Olympics fan and we actually went to the Sydney Olympics. Where are the other hubs? Do you know? Where, where we are the do. Other hubs? So Brisbane is an Olympic Games like no other uh, modern Olympic Games in history in that 57% of the major Olympic venues are located within five kilometres of our CBD. So you're right with um, the Gabba redevelopment, as you know, that's at Gabba. Uh, there's going to be venues hosted along South Bank on the south side of the, the CBD. Uh, Brisbane Live is being redeveloped in the CBD where the old Brisbane Transit train uh, station uh, used to be and they're, they're building it above that location. And we've got also additional venues being hosted at Albion, again, very close to the inner city. The Athletes Village is along the river out at Hamilton. So everything is in and around the CBD. And uh, because of that, uh, it will be interesting to to study some of those trends in residential property value changes in our city compared to other cities because when we compare what happens here in Brisbane to what happened in Sydney, for example, we have a very different type of setup because the Sydney Olympic Games was at Homebush, which was a suburb that was created for the Olympic Games to be hosted, whereas here it's all integrated within existing infrastructure, so quite a different scenario. So time will tell and, you know, we're certainly seeing um, a lot of excitement around that that inner five-kilometre ring simply because there's going to be a hub of activity and a hub of infrastructure coming into those sorts of locations. Excellent. Well, I'm particularly happy because I 15 years ago I picked Woolloongabba as a top suburb and I also picked Albion as a top suburb. So. Okay. 
It'll be interesting <laughs> to see what sort of kicker the Olympics give those two particular suburbs. Well, we'll report back in uh, another nine years' time and perhaps, you know, five years after that again, once we've been able to really track and we do love data, we do love research, um, you know, that's been my background as well as as you probably are aware. So it's the sort of information that I like to closely monitor because it's about educating the community, helping them understand that property investing is not um, the same across the board. There's certain um, nuances that you need to be aware of from a local perspective, as you've highlighted. It's the art of investing as well as the science that's behind the investing um, and it's fascinating to hear your version of events and certainly incredible to see the study that you have got um, underway. And, and this is a study that could continue. And I think that there's none of its kind here in Australia. So we thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing some of this information with our audience, because I think that there's been a lot of value. Pleasure. Thank you. Peter, I, um, we're, we're passionate about property uh, as, as yourself. And I mean, you do a lot of research on it. Um, we, we, We've got three boys and we sort of brainwash them a fair bit ourselves into, into property, wanting to get into property. Don't buy a car, buy a house, goes up in value, that goes down in value. If uh, I, I love it and we, we both, we all love property so much. If people want to learn more and learn off someone like yourself, how can they do that? Can they get in touch through the university side of things? Yeah, so um, I, um, well, up until February this year, I used to be in charge of the Master of Property at the University of Adelaide, but... I retired from that and just did the stuff that I like, which is teaching. So I don't have to manage people or budgets or timetables <laughs> and certainly don't have to go to staff meetings anymore, which I love. Um, but there is one subject that I developed specifically for people that want to learn more about property in general. Yes, it's a part of the Master of Property, but I've made it so it's a non-award subject. So you don't need any prerequisites. Um, you don't have to do the assignments. You're just there for the knowledge. And that subject is called Introduction to Property and Valuation. It's, the code is PROP7005. Uh, if you Google that, you'll find the information. I actually did have earlier this year one of my students in Brisbane who did the course because even though I'm old school, we did stream the lectures online and he joined into the workshops online. But I told him, you can do that but you must come to Adelaide for the field trip because one of the critical components of the course is we hop on a bus and we go around and I point out to students, this is a great suburb because, this is not a great suburb because, this would make a good investment property because, this, would, this is not a good investment property, this is a great development site, this is not. So, you know, I can talk all I want in class, but really those uh the light bulb moment is often on the bus and actually melinda you'll be very interested to hear this we had kate bakos join us last year so kate gave up a time flew over from melbourne to adelaide joined us on the bus trip and i have to say i've been doing these field trips for 20 years that was the best you know her knowledge in particular as a buyer's agent mm. um and for the we focused on auctions because that's what she do, she does a lot of, and to get that insight was terrific. But again, unless you have that local knowledge or that expertise, unfortunately, people can get sucked in by cowboys, mm. um, which is the main reason I'm on the Property Investment Professionals of Australia board is because we, we're trying. We're actually we're trying to regulate property investment advice. Mm. I mean, we've been trying to do that for 15 years and haven't moved much, but 
at least people can protect themselves by getting some education. Absolutely. And look, and if you don't want to do a uni course, okay, there are some great books out there. There are some great podcasts like this one. Um, and mix with like-minded people. And if anyone tells you to buy an off-the-planet apartment as an investment, run away as fast as you can. Okay. That is a clear sign that they're not looking after your interests, they're looking after their interests. It's the best tip that anyone can give a newcomer to the property investment space because you would be making a big mistake in most instances from a from so many perspectives that we won't have time to go into. But um, I agree with that advice and, and thanks for sharing it, Peter. Pleasure. Peter, look, that's been fantastic. As I said, I, I love listening to your presentations. Um, it's always entertaining as well as educational. So I'm sure that our listeners got a lot out of today. Um, we'll lock you in for next year again and we'll get a bit of an update. That'll be fantastic. And I'm sure we'll, we'll catch up again at some um, PIPA presentations as well in the future. So from, from us, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, as usual, I will let Melinda wrap it up and close it out for the podcast. Thanks very much for listening and bye for now. Yes, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thank you for the invitation. I really enjoyed it. One thing I do when people invite me to podcasts is I do a bit of background research and I can see that you two are very legit and you have your client's interest at heart. And so I said yes, where I've said no many, many times uh, to others, but I'm happy to say yes to you. And let's lock that in for next year. So I'll give you a 16-year update. That sounds, on, that on. sounds absolutely incredible. And, look, thank you for the plug. I We do appreciate that. We are passionate about what we do. We are here for the best outcomes for our clients. And, um, of course, as the REBA president now as well, I'm here for industry best practice and ensuring that people are working with ethical providers across the real estate industry, certainly in the buyer's agent space. So thanks again for joining us. To our listeners, if you've enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to share with friends and family. We'd love for you to leave us a review you on your favorite podcast player and as always we look forward to speaking with you again next week thanks so much and bye for now thanks for tuning in today please remember everything we have spoken about on this podcast is general in nature and we always recommend that you obtain independent advice in relation to your specific circumstances if you like today's episode don't forget to subscribe or leave us a review on itunes and of course tell your friends about us if you would like to get in contact, please visit www.brisbanepropertypodcast.com.au or email us at info at brisbanepropertypodcast.com.au. Feel free to send in any questions and we will try to answer them in future episodes.